Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. We're now getting tons of these festivals that people, like with Coachella and Pitchfork and um, uh, ATPs coming over. So we're now like sort of competing in the summer festival. It yeah. used to be just like, you know, Reading was it. And then, well, Reading and Glastonbury. And now you've got just so many. This is a word podcast. It's already started, hasn't it? It Matt? has. It has. Uh, the special guest Wendy Funero is just flown in from California just to be with us. I'd like Hot to say that. off the plane. Yes. Uh, and we're talking about festivals in the states there, and it's interesting you say that because I was just looking on the New York Times website before we started here. There's a fantastic little film, short three-part film that they made about a guy. 23-year-old promoter who's taken his own sort of indie festival on the road. Have you seen this? No, I haven't. And it's apparently, it's apparently started life a few years ago, and it was called Fuck Yeah. But <laughs> now, now I don't know, because this has got it, they've got it on the New York Times website, it's now called F Yeah. Was it, I was going to say, was there a problem advertising? It? <laughs> <laughs> was it sponsor-friendly? Anyway, this guy, I mean, you can only applaud his energy. He's 23 years old, and he, he's bothered to do this. And I'm in favour of anything that gets 23-year-olds out of bed, you know, being the owner of a number myself. Um, he's put together this tour, six bands, on, on a special bus, okay, Cliff Richard's summer holiday style. And so they set off to Baltimore, they're like hours late, first gig, terrible arguments, you know, things go wrong. But it's a wonderful example of how people are constantly trying to increase the degree of difficulty because they've adapted this bus so that it runs on vegetable oil. Okay. Oh, you made it green. <laughs> so, so there you are, in Baltimore, three o'clock in the morning. You've got to set off to your next, next destination. And you've got to find vegetable oil, man. Where do you go looking for that? Well, it's not, it's not even that that would be the problem. And I don't know because I've not travelled in a, in a vehicle that's powered by vegetable oil. But my understanding is it does smell distinctly like a chippy. <laughs> 
That's the one drawback with British Blue Earth. I think so I'd be an advantage. Yeah but, yeah, but you're spending 12 hours on a bus. <laughs> you're tw- yeah, with, Go and spend 12 hours in a chip shop and then tell me that that's a yeah, good the, thing. Yeah, a bus full of rock musicians is usually fragrant enough, isn't it? <laughs> Without the additional element of vegetable oil. But, um, yeah, I so they go around stealing it. Okay. They go around stealing it. I don't know. How do you steal vegetable oil? You go, you go and look in the kind of back alleys of fast food outlets. <laughs> yeah, you you siphon it out of a yeah, deep fat fryer. Imagine save this, the average member of a bad. Tell you what, guys, just before you go on the bus, just <laughs> take this, take this hose and this funnel and, uh, and go and you see and get me a couple of gallons of vegetable oil to get us to the next gig. Or maybe it's what you put on the rider. What? Maybe instead of like five bottles of Jack Daniels and uh, a bunch of, uh, a bowl of M and M's with the brown ones taken out, you get like three hundred gallons of, uh, of spray or tell whatever. You what, I, I'm going to put a link to that on the site because it's absolutely fantastic. It's a terrific little film. New York Times should be applauded uh, applauded for doing that. Matt, how long have we been doing these podcasts? Uh, over a year, David. Okay, have we ever managed to get any money out of an advertiser or a sponsor? No. Right, okay. Has anybody doing podcasts managed to get any money out of an advertiser or a sponsor? No. No, right, okay. But I think I've cracked it, Matt. Uh-huh. I think I've got the economic model. All oh, right, okay? okay. This is it. I realised in the last... I mean, meaning to say this for the last couple of weeks. Some uh, People have started sending gifts. Right. Okay. And I got this, which is sent to Mark Allen, who's not <laughs> here this week. Which is a copy of the Floral dra- Dance by the Brighouse and Rastrick Brass Band, right. who we were talking about a few weeks ago, and um, and it's sent by Mike Reeves, who, who from uh, from a site called Look Listen Limited, which is is all about selling uh, precious old forty fives. So he sent us that. Fantastic, and, and that's also, worth how much? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> also, from Australia, you might like this man. Yeah. He sent us this. Now, if I was better mannered. I would know the name of the chap from Australia. I wouldn't have lost his letter. Right. The person who sent us. This. Like a five-year-old kid on his birthday. <laughs> so who gave me that? You know what we're going to have to call him, don't we? We're going to have to call him Bruce, aren't we? Yeah, I think we so. just said uh, sorry. In the in the absence of any any other name, it's Bruce has sent us Underbelly Uncut, which is a four-disc DVD um, set of uh, apparently Australia's answer to the wire. Fantastic. So, future, if anybody wants to send, send us anything else, yeah. I need a sat-nav for my car. <laughs> don't think you fancy that. We just start publishing. Like having a wedding list I need John a, Lewis or I whatever. Need hard, just... I need a new hard, uh, external hard drive for my computer. There, there you go. Matt Hall, external hard drive. Matt compatible, please. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, just uh, get in touch, you know, mail at wordmagazine.co.uk or on the site. We'll publish our wedding list, shall we? That'd be great. Things we want. Okay. Now, there are many professors in rock and roll. I've been I've been trying to count them this morning. There is <laughs> Professor Longhair, the great New Orleans piano oh, yeah, player. Yeah. There is uh, Bruce Springsteen, sometimes called his piano player, Professor Roy Bitten. Yeah. Doesn't he? Can you think of any more? There there's has what? to be a dub professor. Uh, well, there's there. the Mad Professor, of course, who's a dub. Um, Neil Fraser, who's the South London's premier dub expert. I thought there had to be a dub professor somewhere. There yeah. just had to be. Yeah. There's loads of professors in jazz as well. And, uh, yeah, there's quite a lot of universities of dub as well, I think. Oh, right. <laughs> in fact, I think that, isn't that, isn't that Jar Shacker's night, uh, club night, I think? Oh, is there in London, the University, I think it's the of, University of, dub. of dub, yeah. But anyway, I'm, we're thrilled and honoured to actually have our own professor here this right. morning. We are. Uh, it, it is correct to call you Professor Wendy Fonero. Yes, it is correct. Uh, and, uh, you or t- you- 
You could even go. You could even call me Doctor. <laughs> now there's lots of doctors. Yes, yes. Doctor John. Feel good, Doctor John. Yeah. Now it's not as distinguished. No, as professor's much better. And uh, I'm, I'm delighted Wendy's here because we've been we've been trying to set this up for quite a while since I I read her book, a copy of which I got in front of me called Empire of Dirt. The Aesthetics and Rituals of British Indie Music, which I'm sure you agree, Matt, is a book that needed writing. <laughs> I was just wondering how it came to be. <laughs> and uh, because this is this is the the result of, of Wendy's work in the, I suppose, in the field of anthropology. Is that yes. fair enough? Yes. So for the sake of slower listeners of the word podcast, <laughs> imagine I don't strictly know. What anthropology is. Okay. Explain to us. Anthropology is the study of humans. So what I do... That's pretty broad. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's that's basically it. Anthropology is the most holistic science. So we have to do everything with human behavior and including human physiology. But I do cultural anthropology. So what I do is study human culture. And that means not just Western culture, which is what sociology tends to do, but looking at cultural phenomenon from every geographic region and also from different historic time periods. So it's not easy. Right. But, but don't don't most anthropologists kind of make their bones um, studying kind of like the Bushmen of the Serengeti yes. and, yes, and, and, and groups like yes. that? It tends to be that kind of thing. Yes. But you wanted something closer to home, is that right? Well, there were two things. One, if you're saying something is truly cross-cultural, you really shouldn't exclude modern contemporary society. And um, I found that with sociology, which tends to look at that, they'll take those societies and make generalizations to, and just sort of say what you find in, let's say, France is ubiquitous to the world. Right. So uh, anthropology is the one that knows what's going on in, let's say, amongst the, the San Bushmen or what's going on in Papua New Guinea and then sort of look at all those phenomenon truly cross-culturally. So... I thought someone really needed to do a European case study of uh, ritual phenomenon. So, but how did you start getting interested? I mean, did you get interested in this as a, as a fan or as a, an academic? Absolutely as a fan. I found almost everything I've ever studied was something that I was really interested in personally and had spent lots of time just sort of engaged with. And it would be then when I was reading philosophy or other anthropology that I'd make those connections. So I had been going to shows for years. So let's give, give us a, give us a kind of whistle top. Whistle stop tour of your of your life and career. The, the question we always start with on the word podcast is what what records did your parents have in the house when you were growing up? Well, this is a really interesting one because I come from a family that is really really non musical. Um, the very first single I ever got, I was five years old, and um, a man in a record store bought it for um, me, and it was uh, Sugar Sugar by the Archies. Okay. And then, sorry, a man in a record shop. Yes. Well, yes, because actually at that time, um, I was one of those few, I was from one of those very few broken families and I was on a trip with my mom and my brother. And so it was quite odd for a woman to be taking her children on her own at that point. So this so as a kind of gesture of sympathy and, uh, rather yes. than buying your bag of sweets, he bought you a copy of Sugar Sugar by Works. Yeah. Which is kind of yeah. perfect. Can I just brief tangent? Rolling Stone review of the Archie's greatest hits. Okay? Do you know how it went? One sentence review. Fact. Contained within this record are 12 strong arguments against the capitalist system. End of review. <laughs> review written by Paul Gambaccini. 
<laughs> I said, pick your irony. Yeah, 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 yeah. You start Rolling Stone, oh, genius, Paul Gambaccini. <laughs> anyway, carry on. Right, so go on. That was the first record you got. Yeah, and then um, when I was in second grade, I went to some party where they had um, the Beach Boys' Endless Summer. And I must have come home absolutely raging about this because that was the only music that I had in my room probably for the next eight years. Could do worse. Yeah. So <laughs> could do worse. It could have been something terrible, couldn't it? Yeah. So basically, I listened to the Beach Boys like every single night, stacked my platters and would pick the sides that I would fall asleep to at night. Yeah. So go on. How did you get involved in indie? Um, well, indie, I think that it really happened when I was at university in San Diego where I was working at the college radio station. And unlike most other American college radio stations, the music director at, at the station I was working at was British. So we had totally different music. And when I, and when, I mean, when I was in high school, I started going to dance clubs. And so I was really into, you know, bands like Psychedelic Furs and uh, The Cure and bands that, I mean, at that time in my mind were dance bands. And so when I got to, um, <laughs> <laughs> no, that's oh, good. Yeah, no. I there, guess you can dance to it. Yeah, you definitely could. Yeah, tears for fears. Um, and then when I got to university, I remember um, one of my friends sort of coming back from the radio station with a jazz butcher record, and she was like, "Listen to this." I mean, she had she loved David Bowie, but it was like this entirely different. The jazz butcher. Listen yeah. to this. Now, I have to say that just pass. Listen to this. Radar. It's from London, and he's really in there. <laughs> So different than anything else that was going on. That was on. one of the, must be one, was that the early creation stuff? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So this would, I'm really. So kind of mid 80s? You're getting like dates from me. <laughs> no, well, I, I was being a gentleman so and we not asking. I, I didn't say, <laughs> oh. Game of Battleships. Yeah. Psychedelic Furs. That was. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, my students have been trying to pry my age out of me for years. You guys have done better in five minutes. Um, yeah, that was in the like, um, 80s. Yeah. So. So, how do you, when, and you, and then you started going to gigs and, and started noticing patterns of behavior emerging. Go well, on, tell us how that happened. Well, that actually came relatively late because in, initially I was just going to gigs really as an escape. Um, I was one of, I'm, I'm always early. I'm a workaholic. Um, I loved, I fell in love with anthropology. So I was just being an anthropologist. So you were the early attender at gig. That's a really interesting <laughs> phenomenon. There's always somebody there early. I know people who are there early. Did you? Are you the person you... reading the program? No. Sitting outside reading the music paper? No. <laughs> Although I have to say, I, I realized at one point that I think that my entire career can be attributed to this thing about getting to gigs early. If I went Seeing to... all of the support acts. Yes. <laughs> and but basically wanting to get there when none of your friends would be willing to go. So I would, ha I would go on my own. I was already listening to music that was totally different than what anyone else I knew was listening to. Because there were not in... If you want to think about Los Angeles in the mid-80s, think about listening to bands like The Smiths instead of hair metal bands so i was already odd man out but also that that um california at that time had that kind of was that that the x and yeah, they, they, there was a kind of kind of interesting kind of skate punk scene and kind of I ska sort of, scene and I stuff sort of around came there wasn't in there yeah. right after that oh, okay so was i was sort of in the 
at these sort of underground gay all-night discos. Right. And the warehouse Much parties. Much better place to be. Which is interesting because, like, in the history of, of when people talk about warehouse parties, like, somehow or another, L.A.'s um, scene is totally cut out of that. And I, I was talking to Peter Hook about this because he's writing about the Hacienda. And we figured out that I that we were going to these clubs like Dirt Box and Power Tools that no one talks about. But there were really, each week, you'd sort of call up some phone number and they would tell you to drive to a corner where someone would pass you directions to get to a warehouse that you would basically that one week would be the club and then next week you'd have to sort of start the entire process again. So that attracted you, that idea that it was secret and it was a bit difficult? Oh no, what attracted me is that I had the mistaken impression there'd be boys there. <laughs> oh really? Well they probably were. That's but... <laughs> yeah, girl, girl looking yeah. for boy at indie, at indie games. No, girl yeah. looking for boy at gay LA disco. Sorry. So what would happen would be is I'd get there really early, I'd be on my own and invariably someone would come up and go what are you doing here and I'm waiting for the show <laughs> can I buy you a copy of sugar sugar <laughs> <laughs> but I made loads of friends and so at the point when I actually started putting together noticing patterns and thinking there was something interesting I was already sort of primed with this huge amount of access and knowing people in the music industry because I had met them at all these shows by just being there on my own early sort of sitting there bored. So yeah. I, I'm actually a big proponent on like what can happen if you allow yourself to be bored. And it's one of the things that probably the, the newest thing that I didn't get to write about in the book because it wasn't really going on, but the sort of watching of gigs through your mobile phone or documenting them instead of just being there. Um, I think a lot of that has to do with a lack of tolerance for boredom. And I think that's affecting the way people are experiencing shows. But that's sort of fast forward and right, past. Okay. Go on, go on. All right, go on. Well, so, so observing, what did you observe about how people behaved in these environments? Well, I, I guess initially I didn't really, I mean, I was just an insider like anyone else. Yeah. I was, for the most part, when I was youngest, I was, standing in the front and as I moved back as I aged I was noticing the behavior. Which does happen. Yes. You go further from the stage you can work out people's age. Yes. There comes a time when the mosh pit is not a respectable destination for because gig one of the things that struck me in Wendy's book was you talk about three zones in yes. the audience. Can you explain the, the, how the zones work? Well they're Three zones. The the zone one is the zone that's closest to the stage. It tends to be the youngest fans. Your the your interpersonal distances are the limits of your body, which means you're all pressed up against strangers. Which of course I liked when I was younger, and now I'm like, don't touch me. <laughs> um, I'll mace you. <laughs> got the most frenetic dancing um, and basically it's the loudest and you've got this sort of exuberant behavior and when you move back I sort of call zone to the area of the connoisseurs where it's really much more about watching the band listening to so you've got room to stroke your chin you've got room to stroke your chin <laughs> the second group and lean over and maybe you can tell like you know who's with who you can see groups of friends because uh, in the front you really can't tell who's come with no, who. So now, down in the front, this is really interesting. Down in the front, nobody's passing on interesting insights into what the bass player just did. 
Yeah. Whereas in the second zone, they may well be doing. Yeah. They may be trying to score points. Did you know she used to be in Santo? All that kind of stuff. You can have a conversation, can't you? Well, yeah, yeah nearly. Kind of, yeah. You can kind of whisper. Well, yeah. we all know how we feel about people who have conversations do, yes, at gigs. Yes. We come down very hard on them. Yes. But we don't mind people whispering observations <laughs> to each other. There's nothing wrong with that, is there? <laughs> See, I, zone two would be the whispered observation zone. Zone three is where you're going to hold a conversation. Okay. Right. So at the back is like Oscar Wilde and yeah. George Bernard Shaw. I've got um, I've got a. Uh, I might have to send it to you. I've got a couple of photos that a mate took. He went to see the uh, My Bloody Valentine gig at the um, one of the gigs at the Roundhouse the other the other week. And there's a fantastic photo that he took of the crowd, not of the band. And basically, the strobes are on full, so you can see everybody's face, and everyone has got their eyes closed and their hands pressed over their ears. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just the end of the audience, you know, the, the, the end of gig going as we know it. It's just, everyone paid money. To go there and be in severe pain. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. So what's interesting about this book is you, is that you've observed, well, as you say in the title, the aesthetics and rituals of British indie music, which is what I always, might, you know, coincides, you know, with with the theory of mind that you know if you took a if you took a courtier from the you know, the court of Louis Louis the Fourteenth and put him backstage at a major gig at Wembley, he would entirely understand how it was working, you know. Because it, it's the most hierarchical, you yes. know, you, you can't go through there with that pass. You need that pass plus that pass. And only the, you know, the, the, the lord of the, of the queen's bedchamber yeah. can go in there. Yeah. You know what I mean? And then also how you're going to display your pass, which I love yes. that whole section. You talk about this. You talk about the correct way to display your backstage pass. Go on. Well, I... I wouldn't even call it so much the correct way is that what does the way that you put your past communicate, which says something about who you're trying to talk to and what it means. So the more overt the placement, the more it is that you're sort of addressing the broader punter. And so um, music industry personnel tend to do discrete placement so that they're showing that they don't care what the punters think, that they're not impressed with their past. So they do it where the only people who are going to know they have passes are the people who are also going to be backstage. So that would be what? On the kind of thigh or something? Well, or... No, I, no, I, no, because no, I always put it inside, inside on the, the inside of my jacket. Inside of the jacket. <laughs> Although, are we oh. talking about stick-on passes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. We're talking about laminates. No. Yeah, laminates are a whole other... Laminates <laughs> <laughs> different chapter. Like yeah. <laughs> but if you don't have a jacket because it's a festival or something okay. like that, you'll either have it like um, on the inside of your shirt or on your um, hip. So right. that would be, I call that implied discreet. <laughs> Which, by the way, I did just the other day. I was at um, um, Amoeba Records. Duke Spirit was there. I was handed a pass and put it on my hip. And then two of my friends who saw this and had initially put it up on their breastplate removed them. Moved and, it out. Yeah. They're like, she wrote a chapter on this. We must be doing it wrong. <laughs> no, but all you've done is you've observed something that people do. You haven't suggested to anybody that they do What this. they ought to do. Yeah. I, there's really something to that because um, I was talking to someone about what my next book is going to be about, which is really going to be about ritual, but in a much broader sense and using a different case study. And they said, well, how much of the theory is yours? And I really think at the end of the day, none of it is, because I think what great science is, is talking about something that is really out there in the world. And how can you own that? That's like sort of saying, I own the sky because... I'm the one who was able to discuss its principles. So in that sense, I really think that, you know, there's, it's about description and then being able to take that accurate description and find some way that you're going to 
have a good explanatory explanatory paradigm for it. No, because I, 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 I read it, and, and, and everything about it struck me as true, and I haven't spent that much time at indie gigs, but I've been to gigs of plenty, you know. And uh, you do a whole section on how to check, don't laugh, Matt, how to check your name is on the guest list. <laughs> now, you know... Oh, God. No, it's true. But it's true, because anybody who's, you know, in it... We're all in the privileged position occasionally or a lot of the time. The words of Homer Simpson spring to mind. It's funny because it's true. <laughs> <laughs> and, and this is particularly, I don't know what it's like in America, but this is particularly the case for the British that you want to get in on the guest list, but the last thing you want to appear is desperate to be on the guest list. So the most embarrassing social situation that can ever occur is, is for some reason or another your name not being on the guest list. Mm-hmm. And somebody there not knowing who you are or whatever, do you know who I am? Or <laughs> and so I have done, I have turned on my heel and gone home and pretended I never went anywhere near just to avoid that kind of, can you please call the manager or whatever? You know? Right. So what do you, what do you observe about it? How people behave? You stood there and watched them, didn't you? Oh yeah. I stood there and watched them. Actually, I videotaped them. So I, I would go to shows and I'd set up my camera and put it in the booth and get to watch. That's how I have the transcripts because almost all the work that I did was about videotaping. So I videotaped audiences and I videotaped, um, people coming in on the guest list and I would stand outside and count the number of males and females coming into the show. Um, it isn't the same in America because gigs are not as important to the music industry in America. Financially they are, but as far as the way that the industry networks, it's much more about eating at the right restaurants and, if you, I mean, I worked at an American record company and it was really almost taboo to talk about music with any form of genuine enthusiasm, <laughs> which bad form. Yeah, it was bad form. <laughs> and I thought, so obviously I didn't last there very long. Um, but here the gigs are really important for networking. So it's really important you go to those shows and it's important that you get in and it's important that you don't have to walk past people. So it's funny. Um, so walking past, it's the approaching the guest list window. Yeah. Is the. It's, a, it's approaching the guest list window and having other people see that you haven't gotten in that way or that you've <laughs> tried to go up and you've been sent away. So oh, either of those oh, are just. Hurts, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's why I talk about some yeah. of the best blagging techniques. Actually, when, um, when I'm sort of asked to go around and give talks, um, since a lot of times they're not necessarily anthropologists, um, when I do my talk about the guest list and guest passes, I actually give practical advice on how to... Oh, go on, you've got to pass on those hints now. People well, wanna... you can never just go up and say, I'm on the list. You've already shown that you just don't know what you're talking about oh, because okay. there's always a specific list. And even if you don't know what list you're on, you should say, um, I'm not sure which list I'm on, but... You know, I've been doing this for years and I've never <coughs> worked that out. And that is so a, true. That is, you know, because now you go to gigs... Or get or uh, to get into clubs, and there are literally kind of like there's somebody with a with a uh, a, a, a stack of, of of guest list, and they yeah. and they flick through. If you don't know which list you're on, you they get, just go down yes. and <laughs> with increasing okay. exasperation. You've got to specify a list. and you know that yes. if you're not on it, you know yes. that if you don't know what list you're on, the list that you're on is going to be the bottom one in the pile. Oh. And the other yeah. one that's great as well for me, and I don't know if you do this in the book, is my name is quite frequently, when conveyed to somebody on the phone who doesn't know me, spelt wrongly. 
It's Matt Hall. Yeah, but it's Matt Hall. <laughs> Difficult Matt, it's not, it's not Matt, exactly Polish. Yeah, hey, look, I've been called Matt Wall at certain points. You know, Matt Horn, Mac Hall. You know, okay, right. so it, that, that, it's that kind of that when when the, when your name is spelled slightly wrongly, that's the that's problem, when it can go well. wrong. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so specify a guest list. You have to I... specify the guest list, and then you have to sort of use one of sort of two demeanors. The one which I call the professional demeanor, which is you have to act blasé and sort of in a hurry. So utterly unfazed. It's, and this is the same way you can sometimes just walk past a doorman into the backstage area without showing your pass. Since so many professionals have them hidden, uh, if you're comporting yourself in the right way, you can just walk right in. Of course, it is horrible then if you get caught doing that. (laughs) Um, I have to say I very rarely blag, but every once in a while there's like a desperation where I think I just can't wait in line. I've been working since 8 this morning. It's 10 o'clock at night. If I'm not let in right now, I'm going home. And then I'll use that like Whatever question I act indignant about. And it works really well. And the other one is to be quite friendly. And uh, one of the nice things in the UK is very often the people who are running the door are also the promoters. So they just know you. And yes. they don't even necessarily look. Yeah. Uh, so, you yeah. know, they'll see you and it's like, oh, it's you. Go on in. That sort of started happening a little bit in L.A. now as well for me, which I'm sort of shocked about because I used to... Well, you're the professor of Indy, for goodness sake. <laughs> put you on the list. You know, that's the first step to compiling list, isn't it? Put the you can, you can, don't you carry it around your diploma just to <laughs> prove who you are? No. <laughs> Maybe a picture of you in a motorboard <laughs> or something. Know, tell you, I have to tell you, the best, the best uh, uh, blag I, I was ever party to was many years ago when you two were playing... Um, the Meadowlands in New Jersey. And uh, so they're just really broken through. Those are the days when Bono used to come on the stage with a huge great flag. So when was that? War? Yeah. When's that? I don't know. And the limelight had just opened. In his first messianic <laughs> phase. <laughs> first coming rather than second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and the uh, limelight, the huge great super club had just opened in Manhattan in a church and was... And... Uh, Clive Banks, I'm sure he won't mind me saying it, who was that kind of promotion man back then, the legendary figure in the UK music business, and a smoother operator you never met than Clive Banks. Uh, Clive said, do you want to go to the limelight? And I said, okay. And a couple of other people. And we drove down there, and there was a queuing literally around the block, you know, you know, fashionable, wealthy, influential New Yorkers were out there behind a red rope. Because the key issue about a club is you should have a load of people stuck out in the cold. It's more important to have people out in the cold than to have a small number of people in the warm. Anyway, Clive doesn't join the line. He goes straight to the front and says to the guy, are the band here yet? And the guy looks at kind of corn and animal. You know, oh dear. <laughs> band? He says, you too, are they, are they here yet? Oh, we're with them. Straight in. <laughs> we, are, we, are, we are taken to the top of the building to the VIP bit. Yeah. You know, we're each personally kind of entertained by, uh, you know, a member of the club staff. You two went no interest whatsoever in going to any, you know, club at all. And have probably gone thousands of miles in the other direction. But it's just fantastic English gentleman confidence that Clyde Banks had. Just in that first encounter with the doorman. The yeah. velvet rope thing just reminded me of 
totally off the topic of the uh, of the famous Studio 54. Uh, I'm sure it's an apocryphal story, but you know it's really important to have thousands of people outside. And at the height of the um, of Studio 54, um, I think it's Steve Rubenstein, the the, the owner, uh, Steve Rubell, yeah, um, used to kind of make split second decisions about who he was going to let in and who he wasn't, and. Uh, Supposedly, there was a uh, American couple on their honeymoon in New York queuing outside, and he let the husband in <laughs> and, <laughs> and made the woman go away. And the husband went in. <laughs> that's the end of that marriage. Actually, that's a very interesting point because that's not very native LA. One of the big differences, I think, between <coughs> like the music scene in Los Angeles and New York is that New York, you've always got that sort of keep people out ex- exclusive thing. And the way that LA does exclusivity is through um, sort of control of knowledge. So th- at those clubs that I mentioned, where you had to go through this whole rigmarole, rigmarole to get actually to find where it was, no one would ever be turned away if they found the club. So that's why the clubs had to keep moving for its cool factor, but never, they never had lines of people out front. It was always like, you found it, you're here, you're in. And presumably also in LA, it's a driving culture as well, yeah. isn't it? So people have gone miles to, to get there, so they're not standing out on the, on the sidewalk. Yeah. In LA, we hate lines, and it's always transplants who are sort of at those clubs where they'll let people stand in line, like right. the Sunset Boulevard clubs, but the natives, you see a line, and, and that's another thing. If there was a line, I would stand back and watch people until the line went away. Right. So, again, sort of doing the people watching in with my, like, natural proclivities before I realized, like, I was actually doing research. One of the points you make in here is that, uh, I can't remember the actual quote, that, but there are parallels between indie behavior and, and the kind of Puritan uh, Catholic Split, yes, in, in, in Britain in the you know whatever the seventeenth, sixteenth century. So go on, yes. explain that. Well, um, I actually have to say that sort of it's the indie that presents the mainstream as being Catholic. Can you sorry? Can you just define indie? Uh, for, I know we've got we've gone half oh. an hour through this, but but that's kind of you know that that. Will, are, are you, is this pure indie, or is this is, it, is this indie by music, or is it? What, here, it's not okay. landfill indie. Which well, is we, indie I wanted to. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> oh, I was hoping you wouldn't say that. I'm oh, so wound up about that. I, uh, okay. Go on. Sorry. Yeah. No, I that's all right. <laughs> yeah. Now you know. Like now you know the button to push yeah. a little later. <laughs> Get her mad. Pre- um, I actually go through all the different definitions of indie. So, um, for me, what indie is, is what people argue about what it is. So all the things that you were just saying, is it a sound? Um, is it a mode of distribution? Is it a type of ownership? Is it an aesthetic? Um, is it, um, a sort of a critical appreciation? I go through each of those because those sorts of questions that you ask about indie, those are not the questions that people ask when they want to say whether or not something is hip hop. So that's where I really sort of distilled that there was a philosophy. What are the questions? So my, my professional definition of indie would be what the arguments and practices are of people who participate in this community. So if you're saying that um, ownership of label is important or distribution is important, that's part of how you define indie. Is it a sound? I mean, for me, my personal opinion is I've always felt that indie is intelligent pop music. That's that was my own 
Oh, I know. That's see, my personal one, but not my professional one. See, there's a school of thought that says the best pop music is really dumb. <laughs> <laughs> so where do you put ABBA on intelligent pop music? I would put them just as pop music, and I and I love oh, dancing yes. to that. Well, what about the Knack? <laughs> well, if I... Full Spectre. How about this? If, if I like it, it's indie, and therefore yeah, then, ABBA, then ABBA would fit, and also at least a couple songs by the Knack. See, but that's the... This is really interesting. I read two really good books about music in the last year. One is yours, and the other is Faking It by um, Yuval Taylor and uh, Howard Barker, I think it's called. Um, and it's basically faking it is what the, I think the subtitle, the invention of authenticity in popular music. Yes. So basically their argument is that, is that when, when people argue about what is real pop music, what they're trying to argue about is what is authentic. Well, it says, yeah. well, authentic, it's all invented. Authentic was invented when Lead Belly was put on stage in a prison uniform because it was more likely to appeal to, you know, the, the, the white middle class who came to see him. You know, it's only the same as, Bono waving a flag or any of those kind of things. You know, it's entirely invented. Well, for me, the the sort of quest for authenticity becomes fascinating, and that's really where I I think that you can see that this is really a book about ritual. Because when I, why are you looking for the real in art? That's the craziest thing ever. Art is artifice. So it's your. I think that the reason that people are looking for authenticity in music or in any art form is that if they believe that what's happening on stage is real, then their own emotional reactions are real. So there's this thing where people are trying to look for a sense of real experience in themselves. And they think that the way of doing that is what, what is on stage needs to be real, but it's on stage. So it's already fake to begin with. So it's this interesting double bind, and that's where I think ritual and art lie, is that there are these codes of communication that people seek to find the things that you can't express in everyday life. And I think in some way shows you also that everyday life is also artifice. So I think we're all, we realize that we're in this sort of artificial cultural world and it's in art that we try and sort of work out our discomfort with that. That's really interesting. <laughs> That's going to make my head explode. <laughs> it's very interesting. But anyway, about the Catholic Church. <laughs> no, it is. It oh. genuinely is. Because, I mean, I know the word website, wordmagazine.co.uk, that's what most people spend their time arguing about. What's real yes. and what's not. You know, the real Neil Young is this. The other stuff is not the real Neil Young. You know, and very often, actually, what you're arguing about is, is a simple quality of songwriting or whether a tune happened to occur to somebody on one day when they were 23 years old. And, and, you know, years later it doesn't occur to them anymore. And therefore, one bit is seen as real and the other bit is seen as not real. Yeah, and not, even the idea that, like, sort of youth is hyper-valorized because in other, I mean, in academics, the older you get, the better. So I guess that's one of the reasons why I put my eggs in that, in that basket. But for me, um, when I went through and sort of looked at these various principles... Um, I, I ended up sort of enumerating them, which is another thing that very much like people in the word like doing is like <laughs> making their lists. Yeah. And when I looked at it, I went, oh, my God, this is Puritanism. The idea of the um, you know, love of the vernacular, the democracy, um, the everyday dress, um, the idea of simplicity, the sort of um, the return to a purer age. So ba the basic pre pre um, premises of the Protestant Reformation, which is the idea that you had That's this true. industry 
that had sort of deviated from sort of the true, the true way. Yeah, the yes. true way. And they have these ridiculous clothing and they have like a, a, you know, an industry or a clergy who are uninterested in local concerns. It's a centralized authority. And the idea of the Reformation was that you would have a direct um, experience of the divine and in music, it would be the direct experience of music. Um, so the idea of being big, uh, centralized hierarchy, London, all of that is sort of presented by these protest mo- movements, which are all these various youth movements as being Catholic. And it's sort of the same with American politics, is that whatever side gets presented as Catholic is going to lose. The one that says we are the of the people, the local, the grassroots, that's the side that's going to win. Because in each case, we're, li- we're living in a Protestant society in the U.S., and you live in a Protestant society in the U.K. So, Indy, sorry, guys. I just have this fantastic image of an indie pilgrim fathers getting on a boat in Plymouth. <laughs> All with kind of bowl haircuts and Breton shirts, going somewhere they can worship a twelve-string dretch and birds records. Brilliant idea! Find an island somewhere. Yeah, 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 where they can practice the true religion. Now you know why the Beatles look like roundheads. (laughs) So my my you know my objection that you know I'm not I'm not off planet indie and and I. I get very cross about it, but I need partly to wind people up, really. But, <laughs> you know, my, my take on India is it's the only form of music that was invented in opposition to other things. Yeah. And therefore, ultimately, it kind of runs out of road. Because, you know, what's the point of being... You can't be in opposition to other forms of music. Well, it's I sort of think that India is the post... is like the, either the first or second post-oppositional mode where punk was really like... Post-oppositional mode. Yeah. Well, <laughs> okay. I've never used that word before, but I love it now. No, it's just the first time on the podcast that anybody's used that. I'm all um, in favour of it. Sorry, well, because punk was really the one that was like, fuck you. Yeah. Let's find a way of doing this differently and having a direct relationship between audience and performer. And, and then let's do it like crazy for 35 years. Yeah. Well, <laughs> there were, you know, one chord wonders. And so... Um, Indie, I call them three chord wonders because it's this more Protestant framework. You've got the sort of traditional song structure. In some ways, it is very, very traditional. It is incredibly traditional. Yeah. And, and I love that. I mean, I like a three and a half minute pop song that's beautiful and that has this melancholic longing for the past of some golden age that never was. <laughs> That's fantastic. So, go on, your next book. What is your next one going to be? It's going to be on the American ritual cycle. So, I'm going to be doing Halloween, Thanksgiving, Christmas, and New Year's. Oh, really? Yeah. And so, it's really, actually, it's the grand, it, it's my magnum opus. It's going to be sort of about everything I've sort of figured out from anthropology by using ritual as a vehicle. I actually think the afterword is really the introduction to my right, next book. Right, so, um, so am I right in my theory from my completely unscientific observation of everything going on around me and in my children's lives that most of my teenage years were spent destroying formality, which is now being built up slowly, <laughs> brick by brick, all over again. That, uh, you know, that... Uh, People, people, uh, you know, marriages last last not quite as long nowadays, but weddings are far more formal than they ever were when I was 20 years old. You know, your kids now go to the junior prom or whatever, which in the UK never existed at all. You talk to the average 23-year-old, they have worn a dinner jacket. 
23 year old and when I was 23 hadn't wouldn't have any clue wouldn't know how to do one up wouldn't have been able to afford one well possibly that was was partly that but it it, it just intrigues me and and, you know things like Halloween as you they're bigger than they've ever been what um Halloween is it I the reason I think Halloween has gone so cross-cultural now is, I think, because of The Simpsons, which make a huge <laughs> deal about Halloween every year. And because you guys have Guy Fox, and there's a reason for that. Um, yeah. Well, basically, you had your pre-Christian um, pagan practices. Um, I guess for Northern Europe, that would be like the Festival of Samhain. And that was New Year's Eve. And basically, again back to the Protestant Reformation, um, one of the complaints of the Protestants were that the the Christian church was not really Christian because they did all these pagan things. Because right. the Catholic church basically dressed up the indigenous yeah, practices yeah, yeah. and said, okay, you're actually celebrating your the sainted dead. So there was this need then to sort of, they got rid of all of these pagan holidays, including that would be All Hallows' Eve. And so instead... Um, they got Guy Fox Day, which ends up being a sort of secular yep. um, British holiday. And then, of course... It, and also it, conveniently celebrates the burning of Catholics. <laughs> the burning of Catholics. You basically put Catholics, the Pope, all of these things, that, and Guy, which just are, re- are replacing what were originally burned on bonfires. Yeah. So you've got this just this moment of secularization. Well, in the U.S., initially you had Guy Fox Day. But then once you had the um, Revolutionary War, you're not going to do a British secular holiday. So there was this hole in the American festival calendar, and it wasn't really until the so, Irish... So, see, there's vacancies that just need to be yeah. taken yeah. up occasionally. Or, yeah. yeah, if you go down to Lewis in Suffolk, you can burn it if you, you want to. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> wasn't Gypsies yeah. last year? Wasn't oh, oh, yeah, we won't go there. <laughs> yeah, we just needed the Irish potato famine to bring in a lot of Catholics so we could get Halloween in the American <laughs> calendar. So. Well, Wendy, thank Thanks very much for flying in, especially. Yeah, yeah. She actually has been flying in, especially. You're here for a month, is that I'm right? I'm here for a month. So you're going to loads of festivals. I'm going to go to V in Reading and also <laughs> the field day with the domino all day or thing. Right. So if you're at any of those and you notice somebody with a video camera <laughs> taking notes, standing a few feet back, <laughs> taking notes, you know, that, that could be Wendy and you might be in, in her next book. Yeah. But it's, uh, honestly, I, I'm not going to pretend it's the lightest read. Yeah, it's an academic the, book. Skip the introduction. I really don't think... I I initially planned to have a different UK imprint so I could have more humorous things in it, like if you're not an academic, skip this chapter. Right. But it ended up not happening that way. So I I now have to tell everyone, really, skip that. Just go straight to, you know, what is Indian. You can be reading about, you know, sex and skinny jeans and... And Catholics. And, and you Catholics. know, loads of things to amuse people with at dinner party. Dinner parties. Empire of Dirt, the aesthetics and rituals of British indie music. is published by Wesleyan. That sounds like a proper radio program there for a minute, Matt. <laughs> but I don't know the price. Uh, um, but, sorry. <laughs> and uh, so that's that's the last podcast for a little while, isn't for it? Mu- yeah, we're taking a break. We're t- <laughs> we really do sound like a proper radio station. It's going to be a month's break. Though. Is it really that yeah, long? I think so. I was thinking of leaving the recording gear behind and seeing if Mark Ellen and Andrew Harrison could actually get anything together on their own. Do you feel oh, that? Oh, okay, hey, come on. <laughs> That'll be fun. Yes, it will. So Arguments we'll... about ukuleles and Doctor Who. <laughs> so we'll see you in autumn. Look forward to it. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Details at wordmagazine.co.uk. <laughs> <laughs>